Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 250. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avino Makino, our Father, our King, thank you as always for bringing us to this place where we have the opportunity to study your words, to pour through the instructions that you've given us, that you have superintended and preserved for us by your Holy Spirit, and that you have opened and unlocked to us as we avail ourselves of its truths and as we try to set aside our preconceived ideas of what the text actually says, just allowing your spirit to speak to us, but utilizing the truth that you have given these details, not just to one person, but you've given them to your body. And thus, we must uh, avail ourselves of the tools that you've given us, i.e. the resources that other people are seeing the insights that other believers are gathering by your spirit and we have to share with one another hey this is what god was showing me what do you make of it hey wow that sounds cool here's what god was showing me what do you think about that and as we share with each other the different uh concepts and ideas and details we get this bigger picture as we um composite everything together and compile it and and uh just examine all of the pieces that all that each believer is contributing to this whole so thank you lord that this is the way that you've done it and so we don't have to um expect and scratch our heads and be frustrated when we can't personally understand one scripture verse or one passage we can pray ask your holy spirit he's faithful yet at the same time we can expect and look for insights from other believers and thus utilize the resources together and share them. So thank you for this uh, method of um, giving us this information. It's it's uh, a little bit challenging at times, but it's quite rewarding if we are um, in tune with that type of method. Uh, continue to uh, raise us up and to equip us for the work that you're calling us to do, giving us this mandate of sharing the gospel, of sharing our witness, of being bold in uh, speaking out about who Yeshua is and about the urgency of the matter of, of, of naming him as our Lord and Savior. Thank you for the... Um, opportunities and doors that are opened up for the gospel to be shared in the many different places around the world uh continue to support us and to provide for us as your people continue to protect us even as we know as we read ahead that one day persecution is coming it's going to ramp up really really bad for christians and even for jewish people but specifically i'm focusing on those of us who are believers and we might be asked to give our very life uh, for our devotion to you. And Lord, may we not shrink back on that day uh, if that opportunity arises. May we count it a blessing to be able to lay down our life for the one who laid down his life for us. So bless you, Yeshua, for all of these wonderful truths. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, everyone, this is the Live Internet Study Show. My name is, well, it's not really been called that before the Live Internet Study Show, but it is a internet teaching, an internet study that's performed by myself, uh, conducted by myself. Uh, it usually goes an hour and a half long, unless like last week where I was just finishing up one particular topic. It actually, I looked at the time afterwards and I realized I went for a, a full two hours. However, 
usually an hour and a half long. First hour is given over to a study called Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. You can see the topic list in front of you of the um, details that we're studying through this um, look at the Bible through the lens of prophecy, end time prophecy to make sure. The study is uh, moving towards a study on the book of Revelation eventually, topic 15, 16, you can see on my list. Right now we're right where the yellow slice says topic 10, rapture views and overview. So we've uh, opened up the can of worms known as the rapture. Yeah. The second half of the study, of this live internet study, which is shorter, 30 minutes in length only, is dedicated to the apologetics um, topic of dealing with Trinity issues. Um, particularly, we are comparing and contrasting the view known as Biblical Unitarian, or Unitarianism, non-Trinitarian perspective on Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. We're contrasting, comparing and contrasting that through the, from the perspective of the Trinitarian, which is the, the view I hold to. And we are working our way through a list of verses that shows up on Biblical Unitarian's website, biblicalunitarian.com. And we finished the book of Proverbs, chapter 8, with wisdom last week. Go back and listen to episode number 249 or any of the other 25, 26, uh, something like that shows that were dedicated just to that particular topic. We're going to move into the book of Isaiah tonight, if you're going to stick around through the, through the entire show. Very famous uh, two verses, one that has to deal with the the sign given to Isaiah about the virgin shall, give, shall have a child, the virgin. Uh, shall give birth, and then the sign about um, the names that are given to the child in the book of Isaiah, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We'll be talking about that tonight. All right, so let's jump into our eschatology study, the, uh, the study of end time events. What we did last week is establish the uh, places in the Bible where this idea of rapture primarily shows up with the idea that, and we have to keep this in mind, when God decided to give this truth of what I'm terming rapture in the Bible, he did it through the mechanism of a mystery in the Tanakh that was revealed in the Epistolic Scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament contained the truth of resurrection and hints of rescue and um, protection by God. So we're talking about not just resurrection, but we're also talking about God rescuing his people and or protecting them in the middle of danger. You have both aspects that are foretold and given ample enough example in the Tanakh that would give us the foundation to understand the concept known as rapture. But yet still, according to Paul's own words in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this was yet a, I'm sorry, not 1 Corinthians, it would be the, uh, the Thessalonian letters. This was a mystery. No, I think I'm wrong. I, I, I keep second-guessing myself. I think it's the Corinthian passages, Corinthians 15. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I think that's the First Corinthians 15. 1551. I'm going to look it up here in a moment. So the point I'm making is that when you go looking through your Bible for rapture, it's not necessary to 
put your finger on one specific verse in the Old Testament where you're saying, aha, there it is, there's rapture, or a set of verses. Because if it was a mystery, then you're not going to find one verse. But when we get to the New Testament, for Paul to say, behold, I tell you a mystery, it doesn't mean it's brand new revelation that was only given to him that never showed up anywhere else. Rather, just like all the other mysteries that Paul talks about, it was a concept that was um, kind of foreshadowed in the, in the Tanakh, by other events as we look at them in hindsight and then realize ah there's some indication of some rescue some protection that's that is uh, perhaps maybe coupled with resurrection in the end the easiest way in my understanding to locate this idea of rapture is to remind yourself that according to paul it is tied to the resurrection tied to the resurrection the first resurrection the great resurrection that yeshua initiated when he himself was resurrected from the dead so we're looking at this idea of rapture and i'm building up to this concept because of the popular um way of throwing rapture under the bus in christian circles in particularly messianic circles that i run in uh run uh, that i get that i uh, um, deal with and it's very, very popular to just throw rapture out altogether. Do a Google search for, is the rapture a hoax or something like that on the internet? Do a Google search. Is the rapture real? And you'll find quite a lot of information that tells you, no, the rapture is not real. It's something made up by some guy in the in the in the 1900s or 1850s or 1830s or whatever john nelson darby i can't remember his name something like that the father of dispensationalism and uh he made up this idea of rapture well he got it from this vision from this girl who was in a church in a charismatic vision or was something or she was she thinks she says that god told her that there was there's going to be this rapture and he kind of ran with that and um popularized it and then you've got schofield the the publisher of the bible uh the, the that's very popular among baptists that published in his notes the schofield reference bible and once it was um showed up there then it was just kind of like wildfire it just wouldn't stop and now we've got this rapture and so a lot of people who are dis contented with the idea of rapture they're disappointed with the idea of this pre-trip rapture secret rapture anytime imminent rapture etc etc they've just run that thing ragged and and come to the conclusion that it all must be thrown out there really isn't a rapture at all let's just go with something else well here i am some internet guy telling you that no don't throw out rapture let's Let's retain the idea of rapture, but let's just rethink the timing of it. Let's rethink the details surrounding it. And so that's what we're aiming to do. So what we did last week is I looked through all of a bunch of passages um, that re that deal with rapture. And now I'm going to turn to the Corinthians 15.51 real quick because it's just uh, eating away at me as to where Paul says that. And sure enough, I can just tell by the Bible heading that I'm using here, you can see on your screen, the mystery of resurrection and so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50, Now I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Of course, his topic is resurrection and the idea of God raising people from the dead for the purpose of uh, bringing them into blessing. So he's talking about uh, uh, believers being resurrected from the dead. And resurrection itself is not a mystery it does show up in the old testament it shows up in 
prominent places enough for us that we can, like the Pharisees of old, that we can definitely affirm resurrection of the dead and 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 um, consider that as a as a, uh, a part of our theology and belief system. However, Paul goes on to say in verse starting in verse you know uh, verse fifty uh, one and fifty two the famous part I highlighted it for you on the screen. Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. The Greek word is musterion. I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, and he's talking about dying there, but we will all be changed, and he's talking about being transformed. Whether you're dead in Christ or whether you're alive when Christ returns, there will be this transformation at some point. And then he gives us details in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at when the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And interesting that he puts that in first person when he says we, because um, as far as I can tell, there was always this expectation that the coming of the Lord could be at in any generation and even so in the first century i mean it's it's carried along from the old idea in the in the in the tanakh that the day of the lord was also could could happen at any time there are numerous old testament uh, prophecies that talks about the day of the lord is near the day of the lord is coming the day of the lord is is at hand and yet eschatologically it's been over two thousand years since some of those prophecies three thousand years since some of those prophecies were written, and yet the eschatological day hasn't occurred. But as I was chatting with a friend of mine in the in the room before the study began, there are near term partial fulfillments of what we call the day of the Lord, where God judges either Israel or the surrounding nations, or sometimes both at the same time, where judgment falls, and it was within a generation of the time of the prophet giving the prophecy. So we'll say, you know, within 40, 50, 100 years, etc., then judgment was right around the corner. So there's always the same thing going on in the New Testament, is Paul and the first century church had the sense of urgency that the day of the Lord, which is uh, which accompanies Yeshua coming back, Yeshua's return is at hand. It's near, and so with, with no, it was with great expectation that they would be looking for, you know, and anticipating and even praying that they would be the generation that would witness the Lord's return. Were they believing that it could happen at any moment um, before certain events? Uh, was must precede it. In other words, was it signless, and did it have did it not require anything to precede it? No, I don't follow that line of theology, and we'll talk about that in time. But um, there's the mystery: the mystery of the incarn. I'm sorry, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of the rapture, which I hear, and I say the reason I'm bringing this up is because I hear and see and um, observe that there are a lot of people who say, "Well, there's no rapture in the Old Testament. The Jews didn't believe in the rapture, therefore, why should I? You know, if it's not in the Old Testament, then I should. I'm not going to believe it." A lot of messianics kind of run with that theme of, "If it's not in the Tanakh, then I'm not going to hold to it." And I'm thinking, that's kind of that's kind of dicey ground to stand on. That's shaky ground. You, you don't want to hold that type of theology because God reserves the right to hold details in mystery and give us give them to us not a lot of times as like i was talking to my friend in the chat room again sometimes he gave us details only one place and if you're not going to read that book if that book's not part of your reading list then you're not going to get catch that detail and then you might think well it's not in the bible or doesn't show up more than once so i'm not going to hold to it um you don't want to do that 
Um, God's word is authoritative, even if it does show up once. And even then, usually if God wants us, like he reminded me, if God wants us to really, really grab a hold of it, he's going to give it to us more than once. And indeed, if the Bible is the whole unit, as a whole unit is what you hold to, like I do, then the rapture does show up more than once in the Bible. It does show up more than once. So that's kind of what we're working towards. So let's just, let me stop dilly-dallying and jump right into it. Um, but I do want to show you the uh, the um, uh, graphics, the uh, slides, or whatever you want to call them, these um, views of the rapture that we kind of that we're, I'm going to keep working through. Here are the four views of the timing of the rapture that I'm going to kind of work from. This is one slide that shows the four views listed as pre-trib, which is short for pre-tribulation, meaning the rapture takes place that little yellow circle on your screen at the top it takes place before the seven year tribulation so-called tribulation of seven years spoken of in daniel way back when and the tribulation rapture i'm sorry the rapture takes place before any of that pours out that entire tribulation period is known as the wrath of god on this particular slide that you're looking at uh graphic and then below that, we have the mid-trib, meaning mid-tribulation. Rapture takes place in the middle of the seven years. And then we have pre-wrath, which takes place a little farther to the right side with the um, kind of almost like the middle of the last half of the seven-year tribulation. And then lastly on this slide is post-trib, which takes place, the rapture takes place at the farthest right side after all of the bad stuff has been poured out. So we have raptures. We have raptures, we have views of rapture, but we just disagree on the timing of the rapture. And um, we have another slide here, another graphic, another uh, picture. You can get these on the internet anywhere. That's all I'm doing is I'm just borrowing them uh, from slides that have already been presented. I didn't create these slides myself. This is the one I'm going to work from the most. This is the, it's the same information. It's just reordered in a different way where we've got pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And then we have pre-wrath. We put pre-wrath at the final end because that's the order that I want you to, uh, that I'm going to be uh, discussing them in that order. So either way, we've got this nice detail down at the bottom of my screen where it talks about fixed events according to a literal um, historical uh, version of the Bible instead of historicizing everything and stretching it out over 2,000 years of history or 3,000 years of Israel's history. We take the Bible at face value and take details given in their normative sense of understanding of uh, three and a half and three and a half equals seven. And then we've got 30 days and 45 days at the end of the seven year period. And then we have this big orange, I'm sorry, not orange, yellow uh, marker on the far right of your slide, that which is the millennial kingdom there. So, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, which one is it? I'm going to make a view. I'm going to make a push for the one at the bottom of the screen called pre-wrath. So, let's look real quick, just detail-wise, at what the other three views look like with a view towards pre-wrath. We're going to, first tonight, start talking about pre-trib. <clears throat> Pre-trib is the most popular view by far in Christian circles. Keeping in mind that when we're talking about rapture and resurrection and when will these time when will these things take place, the Christian church in general has this information supplied most notably in the pages of the Apostolic Scriptures, which means unbelieving Israel, national Israel today, who doesn't read the New Testament, largely has no investment or interest in an idea of a rapture for them perhaps 
we would perhaps we would best begin to start talking about the coming of Messiah, the rescue of Israel, the uh, what we might call the vindication of Israel in the sight of her enemies, the establishing of God's kingdom here on earth, the transition from the Olam Haba to the, I'm sorry, from the Olam Hazet to the Olam Haba. Olam Hazet is this age, Olam Haba is the age to come. These are concepts that are spoken of in Judaism, and they are expected and looked forward to because of verses and passages and prophecies that are given in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. But when it comes to rapture, they're not looking, Jewish people by and large are not looking for some Messiah to come and rescue them, uh, rapture them off planet Earth, whisk them up into the sky, right? Uh, beam me up Scotty style. So we're looking at these slides here, these graphics, with the idea that this is predominantly a Christian church. Uh, discussion pre-trib rapture again. It's this is another look at the same uh, concept, just in a in, with more detail. This is the slides I'm going to be using for the most part in this particular study. Pre-trib again has rapture at the farthest left before anything goes down, and it happens. It can happen at any moment. It's imminent, meaning there are no signs that must precede it and no events that must come before it, according to this model of rapture. And this makes the entire seven years God's tribulation slash rapture but it's separated between the first three and a half years being the trib tribulation and the last three and a half years being the great tribulation with the dividing marker right in the middle being the abomination of desolation this puts the second coming on the far right where the um event uh that is um closely aligned with the uh, battle of armageddon where jesus returns to planet earth with the raptured saints and uh, establishes his seven-year kingdom of uh, seven a thousand-year kingdom here on earth we have next to that the mid-trib which is the same graphic the only difference is we moved the rapture from the far left to the middle everything else is basically the same except for again by moving the arrow god's wrath gets moved also on most of these charts if you ca in case you didn't notice and when you look at this one they don't move god's wrath similar to the pre-tribs god's wrath is the entire seven years although it is still broken up between tribulation on the first three and a half great tribulation on the second three and a half the only thing that prominently gets moved is the rapture itself in this particular model post-trib which is adopted by a number of um, important Christian Bible teachers, as well as a good number of Messianics that I have researched on my own personal um, uh, look and studies to the Bible, a good number of Messianics like this view for a number of reasons that we'll talk about later on. But um, rapture gets moved to the far end, which means we as Christians go through all of the mess, all of God's wrath, all of the um, um, stuff that's going to hit planet Earth, all the, all the stuff you read about in the book of Revelation. But how do we survive through all that? Well, the answer, according to post-tribbers, is we get protected kind of Goshen style. If you remember from the, the Exodus plagues in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were located, when the plagues were being poured out, the land of Israel was supernaturally protected in the midst of all the bad stuff that was happening around them in Egypt. God kind of put them in a little bubble and protected them, not by rapturing them out of Egypt before the plagues fell, but rather protecting them in the midst of all the uh, stuff that was going down. So that's the kind of model that many Messianic uh, congregations kind of adopt um, kind of separating themselves from Christian theology that says we're going to be uh, snatched out of the way before anything bad happens.
And then we have, at last, the pre-wrath model that I'm going to hold to, which, according to my own research, is the more accurate of all of the views because it synthesizes the, the strengths of, of the previous views while uh, uh, attempting to discard or avoid all the pitfalls that the other views um, have. And so this is why I hold to this view. The name itself is the only part that's really new. According to my own research, um, this is not only the view that was held to by the first century believers, but it was also the view that was believed on by the early church fathers. They just didn't call it pre-wrath. The word pre-wrath is somewhat modern, but the concept of a pre-millennial um, kingdom in which the, the believers will have to encounter the brunt of Antichrist and go through some heavy time, some, some persecution. Um, I mean, you only have to read Fox's Book of Martyrs and go from there to believe, to understand that the early, um, believe the first, first, the early, I want to say the early church, I mean the church fathers that age. I don't mean the New Testament church, but the early, the church that came after that, they, they believed that they were going to go through some stuff and they had good reason to believe, uh, to, to believe that because of what had happened in uh, Jerusalem to the very first century church, you know, starting from 70 AD and moving forward. So pre-wrath is the view I hold to. Where's the rapture on this chart? Well, it's about halfway through the second half of the seven year time slates. But notice the titles of what takes place in that seven years now has drastically changed. Instead of the first three and a half being called tribulation, it's now given the biblical title uh, beginning of sorrows, which is, in my opinion, more biblically accurate in calling it tribulation. And then we have the midpoint there, like you can see on your screen. And then we have this part called the Great Tribulation. But it in it is only limited to part of the last the last three and a half years the other uh, part of it uh, separated by the rapture itself is called the day of the lord or god's wrath and then we have the second coming at the farthest right of the screen so all of the prominent pieces are still there antichrist signs a covenant it's seven years there's an abomination of desolation at the midpoint and then there's some wrath being poured out and there's a rapture and there's a second coming so all the major parts are there just when they take place are different so that's the view we're going to work with what we did last week is um we looked at this short essay that i wrote 25 plus years ago i think it was i don't even have a date on it um, and I just um, refreshed it for this time just to, to change the uh, graphics that you see that are included. But primarily, this particular um, short essay has been uh, copied into the description of the video series for this beginning this particular um, topic, starting topic 10 that we're in right now. So if, in case you missed this, you don't even have to go back last week and read it all. You can just... Take the video you're watching right now, scroll down into, not into the video, but scroll down into the description part, scroll down in, in your YouTube player or your browser, wherever you're watching this YouTube video, and you'll see there in the description, I've reproduced the three, I'm sorry, the four Raptor views into the descriptions uh, there, so you can just find them there. All right, that having been said, let's turn now to looking directly at the Rapture. We have to back up and ask, what is the Rapture, and define these terms this isn't a very long read. We'll easily get through this one tonight. And then we're going to turn, uh, continue with gotquestions.org's resources and ask when is the rapture going to occur in relation to the tribulation and start building a case for the prominent view known as pre-trib first. 
And I'm doing this because, A, it's the more popular view. It's the one that most of you are probably be being taught in your churches. If you're listening to this podcast, watching this video, and you're a Christian, pre-trib is the view you're probably already used to hearing. And I just want to make sure that I understand the very thing that you guys already understand and that we are kind of of the same in the same boat before I tell you to get out of the boat and get into the boat known as pre-wrath. Right. Yeah, I'm being funny. No, I, I'm I'm fond of studying this pre-trib view because, on the one hand, it establishes the rapture because as we start moving and looking at some of the other views, we start moving away from um, a more biblical understanding of is there even a rapture at all? And to the point where we get like many in the church have become kind of disillusioned and disappointed with this idea of rapture and decided to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so now we don't even have Christ coming back and rescuing us anymore. We just have to sit out the whole thing or or we have this idea of well there's really no rapture what's the point of going up and then coming back down really quick in other words we kind of neuter the rapture we 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 um rob it of its of its significance in the bible the fact that god is interested in protecting us or rescuing us we take that idea away from the bible and um just because we don't we don't think that it's necessary but in reality i'm i'm trying to convince you of two things i'm trying to convince you that yeah rapture is real and that it's worth studying um but that's the first part of my argument but the other thing i want to convince you is that the timing is important as well and so pre-trib imminent anytime secret rapture is not very scripturally sound and we can safely abandon that idea but in favor of a better perspective that locates the rapture in a place of the scriptures where it belongs namely um uh after the tribulation but prior to the uh god's uh, wrath being poured out all right, so we're going to look at those in time. And then, as I mentioned last week, we're going to continue talking about what is rapture. We'll look at uh, this um, article by um, uh, Pastor John Piper. He takes a view, I believe, known as post-trib, that one. Um, we've got some more resources. This one's by Brother Aaron Eggment. Eggman, I don't know if he's a pastor or not. I, I forgot to ask him. I emailed him uh, recently, I think uh, about a month or so ago, and asked him if I could uh, use these resources uh, very prominently because I, I found his resource, uh, particularly his book, The Saints Go Up and the Wrath Comes Down, to be very, very helpful. And he said, sure, uh, go ahead, you can use them. Just don't alter them and, and make sure you give me credit. So, uh, Brother Aaron, Brother Eggman, thank you. Um, I'll, I will point people back to your book. So we're going to use his um, resources at pre-wrath resource, Um there's another article, What is the Rapture and When Will It Happen? We'll look at that in time. Here's another one, The Rapture of the Church. And uh, just different um, uh, articles as we eventually start working our way from pre-trib towards pre-wrath. Here's uh, Alan Kirshner's uh, website, What is Pre-wrath? We'll eventually start working towards that. Then with a view towards pre-wrath, we'll jump back into uh, Brother Aaron Eggman's resources here um talking about certain details that are very very helpful um just kind of flashing through some of the uh the pages so you can see them and then as we begin to wind down in the study we'll come back around and look at the strengths and weaknesses of the pre-wrath view through the lens of godquestions.org and then lastly 
but certainly not least, we're going to turn to um, Brother uh, Charles Cooper, uh, who has a web resource, uh, prewrathrapture.com, and there's an article on the Prewrath Rapture that we will eventually begin looking at. Let me go like that so you can see that. Um, so that's what we'll. That's where we're going. So having said that, let's jump back over to this page. All right, you ready? Here we go. This has got questions.org and the resource online, and I've linked most of these teachings in the descriptions of the video below. Gotquestions.org might be in there. I can't remember. But the question is, what is the rapture of the church? So let's start reading down through this. Um, answer. The word, uh, let's go like that. Answer. The word rapture does not occur in the Bible. Okay, stop. Full stop. Yep, here's one of those cases where, again, we have people who want to argue against any particular topic of the Bible, and they start their argument with, well, that word doesn't even show up in the Bible. And I'm always humored by that line of reasoning, because it is, I mean, it's the, e it's the easiest one to dismiss. Does the Bible, I mean, are we? can we get past this idea of the Bible doesn't have to use something by name, the name that we're familiar with, it doesn't have to use it by name in order for the concept to be taught. There are just too many ideas and concepts that are actually taught in the Bible that don't have the names attached to them the way that we expect. And need I remind you that one of the primary reasons that the Bible doesn't have so many of the, the concepts in them that we think should is because the Bible wasn't written in English. Come on, the word rapture is an English word. Hello, the Bible is written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, as far as I can tell, and the rapture isn't one of those words. It comes from, as the as this uh, article shows, the term comes from a Latin word meaning a carrying off. It's kind of like raptura or rapture or rapturus or something, um, raptura, rapturna. I can't remember the original Latin word. But it's where we get our English word rapture. But the Greek word behind it, the harpazo, the snatching away, does show up in the Bible. And maybe we'll get to that in time in one of these studies. But the idea that there is going to be a snatching away, a a a quick rescue um, deliverance, that idea does show up in the Bible in more than one place. So we can be uh, sure of that. So a carrying off, a transport, or a snatching away, the concept of carrying off or the rapture of the church is clearly taught in Scripture. And when I say clearly, or I'm sorry, when this article says clearly, I, I believe what they're talking about is now that the mystery has been given a permission by God through Paul to be revealed to the rest of humanity, meaning it was God's mystery to be hidden it was God's plan to hide this mystery of rapture. And let me just, again, um, emphasize this because we're getting into it now. This idea of rapture is very kind of pinpoint specific. And so rather than me explain it to you, I'll let GodQuestions.org explain it. They, they describe it this way. The rapture of the church is the event in which God snatches away all believers from the earth in order to make way for his righteous judgment to be poured out on the earth during the tribulation period. And he continues, the rapture is described primarily in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. What happens? God will resurrect all believers who have died 
give them glorified bodies and take them from the earth ready for this along with all living believers who will also be given glorified bodies at that time so that is rapture we're talking about the living believers not having to die before they meet the lord that's the mystery that's the rapture although the rapture as a whole includes the dead in christ rising first and then the living in christ meeting the dead and then we all we're all together all of us are together with the lord we're not even talking about how long we're going to be with the lord are we going immediately up and then coming immediately back down like the post trib kind of uh, hints at or are we going to go up to be with God for seven, uh, be with Jesus for seven full years, like the pre-tribbers say? Or if, if it's just the uh, pre-wrath or one of the mid-tribs, like I'm talking about, the pre-wrath, we're just going to go up for a short while and then come back down a little bit later on with this at, during the second coming. Let's read the classic passage first in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, quote, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, Paul says, we who are still alive, there's the mystery part, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to beat the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. First Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. I, 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 you know, you gotta give God a hand for hiding something like this from Israel and with good reason. Part of the mysterious part of rapture is that it involves those who are in Christ. Notice it said, and the dead in Christ, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout, and the dead in Christ. So even if you took the word Lord there from a Jewish perspective that it's referring to God, it says the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Okay, that kind of makes sense. We're talking about the Lord God, Father. It's going to come down from heaven. But then it says, the voice of the trumpet of call of God and the dead in Christ. So if you're a Jew living in any time before the first century, and someone came along and suddenly started talking about this idea that God is going to rapture those in Christ, you'd have to start backing up and going, Christ? Messiah? What does it mean to be in Messiah? What does that concept entail? And so the idea of rapture is intimately tied up with this idea that there is a group of people who are in Christ. And I'm focusing on that because this is where the mystery kind of meets its cutting edge. Unbelieving Israel, national Israel, is not in Christ. They do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, much of what the new testament deems as mystery where we're talking about incarnation or the inclusion of the gentiles or the rapture much of the mysteries that are revealed in the new testament were hidden from israel and are still hidden from israel down to this day only because of their spiritual blindness it's not any fault on god's side anymore god has revealed the mysteries to the church, to the Jewish people that are in Christ, namely the first century apostles and, and following from there. But now when we talk about mystery, we don't have to turn to the Tanakh 
to read about the mysteries, we can safely turn to the New Testament parts of our Bibles and look at the mysteries in full in full value and face it right there in our face. Paul's telling us that the dead in Christ will rise first. So, which means when we look at all these prophecies in the Tanakh, and this is where I'm going with this, why I'm paused for a moment. When we look at all those prophecies in the Tanakh that talk about resurrection, I'm thinking of Daniel, I'm thinking of Job, I'm thinking of Isaiah. Um, let me just zero in on Daniel for a moment. Daniel chapter 12, in case you weren't aware, let me just turn to it because this is uh, important um, that you would see this. Daniel chapter 12 Daniel was told, starting in Daniel 12, verse 1, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of her people, will arise. What that means, we're not going to talk about right now. But there will be a time, Daniel is told, of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be, what? Rescued. Yeah. So Daniel is given this view of the end time scenario that had an immediate fulfillment with the coming uh, judgments we had babylon being um taking israel off to um uh babylon uh um, scooping up israel um, not israel really but judah and carting them off in a captivity to babylon which of course is why daniel's in babylon writing from there but also daniel's told that there will be events in the future and from daniel's perspective is likely near future where um, uh, Israel would once again be under um, siege by enemies, by her, the enemies around her, and yet God would have to rescue them once again. So, all of these details that Daniel's given have near-term uh, fulfillments awaiting them, but yet at the same time, the prophecies are pointing to a far distant future, which we would call eschatological um, events, that Daniel was really confused about. But, Amidst all of these details, suddenly the angel tells him that there's going to be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and we're talking about a tribulation. But within the context, we can safely now say that this is the tribulation that we're going to be looking forward to. I I don't mean looking forward to as in anticipating, but we know it's coming down the road. In other words... Um, it will be the greatest persecution that Israel has ever gone through because it says such has never occurred. And this correlates with whatever Yeshua said when it said, when he talks about there'll be distress upon this people that such as that was never occurred and will never happen again. Matthew chapter 24, go ahead and read it. But notice that the, the, the angel, angel tells them that at that time, your people who all, everyone who's found written in the book will be rescued rescued this idea of god coming to the aid of his people but let's keep reading in verse 2 and many of those who what sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life but the others to to disgrace and everlasting contempt so what is verse 2 talking about it's talking about resurrection so this is not a concept that was hidden from Israel, but the aspect that Daniel would have caught probably didn't include the Christian church it most, it most certainly didn't include this idea that there would be a group of people that were attached to Israel, grafted into Israel at the covenant level that allowed them to also be named as those who are your people, right? Remember earlier just said, um, at that time, your people, that's the context, 
Everyone who's what found written in the book will be rescued and many of those, who's the those in this translation, many of those people who are your people, will who sleep in the dust and the ground will awake. These, your people, those who are um, awaking um, to everlasting life, those people who are found written in the book, they will awake to everlasting life, contrast, but the others, others who sleep in the dust, others who have died, to disgrace and everlasting contempt, meaning... Um, there's clearly a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you think Daniel knew that the righteous were those who were part of Israel or and or part of the church? I think he obviously thought that the holy ones that show up earlier places in this in his in his book, um, the 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 holy ones, the saints that we that's translated in many Bibles. I'm sure he knew that those were righteous Israelites, but he probably didn't understand the mystery that was revealed to Paul. I'm quite certain that he didn't understand the mystery. That include that would uh, the Gentiles were included among the righteous in God's perspective because they were what going back over to Paul's words they were in Messiah meaning uh, and here's the point I'm trying to highlight in case you're missing it to be in Messiah is a very exclusive term that Paul utilizes in Christ and Messiah right in Christo in the Greek to focus on this group of believers who are not just generic believers in God. They are specifically Christians. They are specifically Jews who have come to place their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, not just people who believe in a messianic concept. It is a very technical term in Paul's writings to be in Messiah. So all those Jews in Israel who claim to believe in Schneerson as the Messiah, they are not in Messiah even though they might be labeled Messianic Jews in a generic sense of the word. But the in Messiah that Paul has in mind is in Jesus Christ as Messiah. So going back to Daniel, those who sleep in the dust of the ground and awaken here, right? They, they are part of the resurrection, but Daniel didn't realize that they were also those who were in Messiah. Because the rest of the people are clearly not going to take part in the first resurrection. I say clearly, there's a separation here in Daniel. Um, some will awake to everlasting life and others to everlasting contempt. Daniel doesn't even couldn't even tell that there's a thousand year separation between these two events here. At least a thousand years because of the um, millennial kingdom. But we know this from other uh, low places in the Bible that we can corroborate with that there's a thousand year separation between this first uh, awakening here in verse 2 and the second awakening in other words those who awake to everlasting life is separated a thousand years by those who awake to er disgrace and everlasting contempt and then he goes on to give more details so going back to um what we were looking at where is it it's at that one nope it's this one so going back to what paul's talking about it is those who are in Christ who will rise first, meaning before those who are alive in Christ. But still, it is this event for those who are in Christ. And this becomes extremely important when we're looking at why the rapture has to happen and the timing of the rapture. Who is the rapture for? Is it for Israel? Well, God would be God would would like for it to be for Israel and eventually according to Daniel there is there are going to be events that bring Israel into this meeting with God right they're going to meet their Messiah they're going to meet God 
But will they meet him at the rapture event? Well, sad to say, no. Unbelieving Israel is not going to meet their Messiah at the rapture event, at least not in the way that they want to meet him. When they meet him the first time, or when they when the rapture happens, as far as I can tell, they're going to weep and wail because they're going to realize that they were wrong. And yet, unfortunately, that's not going to give them the type of faith needed to be included with those that Paul calls in Christ. So, um, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm in Christ, and you should not be ashamed either. Therefore, I'm also not ashamed to admit that the rapture is primarily for the Gentile church at large, in large, primarily, not exclusively. Obviously, if you're a believer and you're Jewish, then you're in Christ. Anyone who is a believer in Christ is in Christ, but that's the minority of people on planet Earth today. So it's not for those who are unbelieving Messiah. Those who reject Jesus as Messiah are not in Christ. It's pretty simple to understand. I hope you can catch that. This is very important part of the um, of the rapture uh, topic is who exactly is being raptured and why. Let's keep reading gotquestions.org. The rapture, they go on to say, will involve an instantaneous transformation of our bodies to fit us for eternity. And then we have a quote from 1 John. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Notice it says, we shall be like him. Yeshua already has his resurrected body. So when he appears and we are transformed, like Paul tells us, we will be transformed. We believers, those of us who are in Christ, we will be transformed into the same body that he has well, maybe not 100% exactly the way he has. I mean, he has full deity dwelling within him. How much deity will have, I can't say exactly that it'll be the same as his. But unless you're, wait a minute, wait a minute, unless you're of that brand of theology that says that we will be turned into gods ourselves. What is that? Jehovah's Witnesses? Mormons? Mormon theology? What are those two? All right, so 1 John 3, 2 is the quote there. The rapture, this article goes on to say, is to be distinguished from the second coming. Let me flash over to that chart that I um, uh, showed earlier. Uh, rapture on the left, second coming on the right. These are clearly two different events as far as I can tell from a face value reading of scriptures. I'll just pause long enough to let you see them on the screen right now. I'm not going to read down through them. But this is also critical to understanding the rapture timing because of the events that are associated with the rapture allows us to notice or distinguish or determine that not only are they two separate events, but to help us understand when in accordance or in conjunction with other events that are connected with these events like first and second or like first like I'm sorry, like rapture versus second coming. Um, when the timings are. And so there are other events that are detailed in the Bible, especially when we get to the book of Revelation, lots of detail. But there are details that are given in the Bible that will help us locate what event is taking place based on the details uh, that are connected with them. So going back over to um, gotquestions.net uh, dot, uh, dot, uh, got or .org, I'm sorry. Um, at the rapture, we see at the very least the Lord comes in the clouds to meet us in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And yet, by contrast, at the second coming, the Lord descends all the way to the earth to stand, his feet stand, on the Mount of Olives, resulting in a great earthquake followed by a defeat of God's enemies. So we're talking about Armageddon or something like that. Zechariah 14, uh, verse 3 and 4. 
verse uh let's keep reading we've got uh time to finish this we've, we're, we've got 15 minutes left so i hope you are able to follow along with the study um and that it's not confusing go back and rewind if, you, if you're not sure uh got questions continues the doctrine of the rapture was not taught in the old testament which is why paul calls it a mystery now revealed and then here we've got the passage that i was kind of fumbling on earlier first corinthians 15 51 and 52 paul says listen i tell you a mystery we read this earlier we will not all sleep but we will all be changed this is the humorous verse uh, this is the verse that is humorously pasted posted above quite a number of nurseries in baptist churches <laughs> that i visited when i was in the united states right it says we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed talking about the babies of course who are often found crying in those nurseries who are not sleeping but gotta change those dirty diapers right okay so they're not they won't all sleep but they will all be changed uh paul goes on to say that we'll be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet and then he continues for the trumpet the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed first corinthians 15 51 and 52 so the uh in case you weren't following along the resurrection was taught in the old testament i just showed it to you in daniel chapter 12 however the rapture in other words the catching up of the believers alive to be to meet the lord in the air no less was not taught according to paul not in the sense that it would not be um that it should that it would not be unmistakably uh discerned and i believe that part of the mystery of the rapture i.e the snatching away of live believers to meet those who were resurrected so part of the mystery aspect of the rapture i believe is directly connected to the mystery of the gentiles being included within the body of messiah in other words the presence of the church the mystery of the uh jewish people and the gentiles who are who are true believers being brought together in one body the mystery of the gentiles the mystery of the gospel that paul calls it talks about it in um ephesians the mystery of the gospel is directly connected in my sense with the mystery of the rapture they're both mysteries they were both hidden from israel's perspective but they were both uh given um a treatment in the tanakh but not in the sense that they were um uh completely unveiled they were still how it would happen was a mystery and a lot of the details surrounding what would happen was a mystery but it was hinted at in the old testament both of those mysteries and i believe they're connected and then continuing through our reading with uh, um got questions and we'll pick, uh, jump into the next one the rapture of the church is a glorious event and we should all be looking for it I mean, this is the part that kind of disappoints me with Christians today who are disillusioned of the rapture. They're kind of fed up with the Tim LaHaye books, and they're fed up with the idea of pre-trib and all the holes that it represents, and so they just throw out rapture altogether. No, don't do that. Rapture of the church is something we should be looking for and longing for. God questions continues, we will finally be free from sin. We will be in God's presence forever. I might also add that we will be rescued. Remember that one version of daniel said that your people at that time will be rescued and we could go look at the original hebrew and see what it's referring to they will be saved they'll be rescued they'll be preserved what exactly is daniel being told there um what can we ascertain from just that one passage 
Well, we do know, at least from a rapture perspective, that there will be this intense persecution that necessitates God sending His very Son to intervene, right? Whether it's rescuing us from harm's way, you know, snatching us out of the way from, from danger, or supernaturally protecting us in some way without taking us out of, off of planet Earth. Either way, we're still talking about God's very Son getting involved. Um, got questions continues. There's far too much debate over the meaning and scope of the rapture. It's unfortunate. This is not God's intent. Rather, and I, I, real, I do believe this to be um, very uh, kind of sound teaching here, that the devil has stolen this idea of rapture because of the confusion and con uh, contradictions of pre-trip rapture, and because of the argumentation that takes place among Christians over the timing of the rapture, and the devil has taken that opportunity, seized that opportunity, to snatch the idea of rapture away from us as a church, to say, hey, you can't trust the timing, you can't trust it to get it right, uh, one guy says it's this time, the other guy says it's that time. So the devil kind of whispers in our ear as Christians and says, just toss the whole thing out altogether. That's the best thing to do. Don't worry about it. You're not going to go through anything um, uh, really bad, or you're going to have to go through all of it. Right? He has this evil, maniacal laugh where he's like, I win, right? I get to, 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 to persecute you without any restraint or anything like that. Or... He, he looks at us and says, oh, you poor, I'm, I'm speaking as if I'm the devil, oh, you poor Christians, you thought your champion Jesus was going to rescue you from all of the bad stuff that I'm going to pour out. Well, guess what? Not only is he not going to rescue for, rescue you from all of my wrath, but he's going to make you sit around until all of God's wrath is going to be poured out too. You're not only going to have to go through my crap, you're going to have to go through God's crap too, right? Um... Is that what the devil's done to us as a church, right? We've given up on rapture. We've given up on the, on the idea that God can and will rescue us, that he can and will preserve us and protect us. Is God impotent now? He, he's, he's too weak to rescue us, or he's, he doesn't care about his, his own body? He doesn't care that we're going to be persecuted? He doesn't care that um, we're going to suffer when the wrath of Satan is poured out? And is, is he judging us by pouring out his wrath on us too? These are real questions that Christians wrestle with, and it's so unfortunate that people have given up on rapture in this particular discussion. Uh, God question says, no, this isn't God's intent. There's far too much debate, uh, but it's not God's intent that we um, argue. And so I hope that in this study, in my perspective, and my attempt at um, teaching you yet one more view of rapture, the, the idea is not to um, add one more confusing voice to the discussion, but rather... In the end, at the very least, if we can't agree on when the rapture is, at least can we agree that God is able to and does want to rescue slash um, preserve us and uh, protect us. And let's be unified on the idea that there is um, importance that is placed on trusting in God's protection no matter when or how that protection plays itself out. All right, Omain, Omain. Uh, got questions that concludes by saying, rather, the rapture, instead of dividing us, it should be a comforting doctrine full of hope, right? I mean, it is tied to the resurrection after all, and that is something that I'm, I won't compromise on. 
As far as people saying, well, there's no there's no rapture, it almost hears like it almost sounds like they're saying there's no resurrection. And if you're going to go that far, then I am going to get quite upset, and I will have to take issue. There absolutely is a resurrection. Please don't say there's no resurrection. In fact, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, God, God question says God wants us to encourage one another with these words, right? One Thessalonians four eighteen. Okay, so that's the first of two articles by gotquestions.org. We've got uh, six minutes, seven minutes left. Let's jump into the second article. I don't know if I'll finish this one or not. The second one is a lot um, shorter. When is the rapture going to occur in relation to the tribulation? Um, let's just read this one. Again, gotquestions.org. Answer, the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation is one of the most controversial issues in the church today. The three primary views, as I already mentioned, are pre-trib, the rapture occurs before the tribulation, mid-tribulational, the rapture tribulational, the rapture occurs at or near the midpoint of the tribulation, and post-tribulational, the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation. And then they go on to recognize that a fourth view, commonly known as pre-wrath, is a slight modification of the mid-trib position, which I agree with. In fact, there was a book that came out a few years back that talked about these three views, pre, mid, post. But since then, the collaboration of authors that put this book together, they have since uh, revised their book be, uh, to uh, be pre, uh, pre-trib, pre-wrath, and then post-trib. And the reason is because um, statistically, if I remember correctly, the pre-wrath position has overtaken the mid-trib position in terms of popularity because they're so closely aligned in theology with what they're teaching that uh, the authors felt, hey, let's just add, just, just take away the name mid-trib. Let's just apply it to the pre-wrath, which is, for all intents and purposes, a kind of a mid-trib or something to that effect anyway, but pre-wrath. All right, so let's keep reading uh, Got Questions. This is a very short article. They go on to say, first... It's important to recognize the purpose of the tribulation. According to Daniel 9.27, there is a 70th seven, i.e. seven years, that is still to come. If That is, if you're not a preterist. All right, number two, uh, Daniel's entire prophecy of the 70... Um, 77s, right, Daniel 9, 20 through 27, is speaking of the nation of Israel. It is, I'm sorry, not second, but still underneath the first, about recognizing the importance of the purpose of the tribulation. Um, it is speaking of the nation of Israel. So Israel is the ones that's going to have to experience a lot of bad stuff happening for a specific purpose. And well, he's going to talk about the purpose. Why? It's a time period in which God focuses attention, especially on Israel. The 77, the tribulation, must also be a time when God does what? He deals specifically with Israel. So we do need tribulation. We've got to have it because Israel is in unbelief. Israel currently is in rejection of her Messiah. She is in um, rebellion against God because of her rejection of Messiah and her rejection of the truth of the apostolic scriptures, the incarnation, the New Testament truths of of the um, the church being connected to Israel. She's in rejection of a lot of that. She's in blindness to be sure, but she's also in open rebellion along with un, uh, the rest of reprobate humanity. While this does not necessarily indicate the ch that the church could not also be present, right, when we're talking about Israel's um, need to go through a tribulation and wrath of God, it doesn't indicate that the church could not also be present. It does bring into question why the church would need to be on the earth during that time. So what we're doing is we're setting up this idea of rapture 
for the Christian church prior to the seven-year tribulation being poured out for Israel. So in case you're not catching it, a lot of pre-trib theology is foundation is rooted on the foundation of dispensationalism, particularly the part of dispensationalism that teaches that the church and Israel are two completely separate entities in God's program. And so it's necessary for God to remove the church out of the way prior to turning to Israel and dealing with them once again. So that's kind of a premise that they're working from. They continue. The primary scripture, and we're closing with this, the primary scripture passage on the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, which I agree with. It is one of the primary, if not the primary, uh, next to the 1 Corinthians 15, 51, one that where we read where we should not all sleep, we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye, uh, that verse. Um, but the one here in 1 Thessalonians 4 states that all living believers, along with all believers who have died, Right, that mystery part will meet the Lord Jesus in the air and will be with him forever. The rapture is you ready for this? Here's a definition the rapture is God's removing of his people from the earth. And when we say his people, we're talking about <clears throat> we're talking about the people who are in Messiah at the time. So the rapture is going to remove those who at that time are in Christ, they have that label, but only those at that time. Pre-trib also goes on to recognize that there will be more people who are um, who do become believers in the tribulation. They got this clever term called um, tribulation saints for that. People will come to Christ during the time period of the tribulation. However, they won't um, experience any rapture. They will have missed the rapture. They will then have to ex- to go through the um, tribulation period and possibly be martyred, give their life for Yeshua. Or if they survive, they'll go go not only through the tribulation, but by inclusion from the pre-trip perspective, they are going through the wrath of God as well. And we're going to deal with that in time. We'll talk about those details. But for now, just know that the rapture is necessary from a pre-trip perspective to remove God's in Christ people, those Christians that Paul talked about in the in the uh, Corinthians passage those who are in Christ at that moment, and rescue them from any tribulation or, more properly, any wrath that God's going to pour out on those who are not in Christ. So, it's for removing his people from the earth. And a few verses later in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Who's the us first person? It is those of us who are in Christ, us believers. God has not appointed us Christians to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that he has appointed someone else to suffer wrath. Who's going to be appointed to suffer wrath? You can read it all over the Bible. It's those who are in open rebellion against God, those who have rejected the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, those who have rejected Christ himself. Those are the ones who are appointed not just for tribulation, but ultimately for wrath to the point that they could be rescued if they would um, embrace the truth. But sadly, the time is is running out for them to make a choice. As we read in other places in the Bible, God is going to send a strong delusion. And they will actually begin to be turned over to a reprobate mind. I'm combining um, theology from the Thessalonian verses along with 
the uh, the theology of Romans chapter um, one, where God says of those who are vessels uh, destined for wrath, your time is running out. Uh, my mercy is it has been extended, and yet because I am a just God, I must punish. But according to pre trib, before I punish. I'm going to rescue those who are my own. I'm not appointing wrath to them because they are in Messiah. They are in my son. They have been exempted from that wrath to come. Uh, this uh, article goes on to say, the book of Revelation, which deals primarily with the time period of the tribulation, is a prophetic message of how God will pour out his wrath upon the earth during the tribulation. Keep in mind that this view of pre-trib uses this word tribulation in the sense of there's a a earlier part of tribulation and a latter part of tribulation, but they're both tribulation, and the entire length of the tribulation is seven years long, even though it's broken up to three and a half and three and a half. The first half is the early part of tribulation, and the last half is the great tribulation, but both of them are tribulation, and they both equal the wrath of God, according to the pre-trib view, in order for you to understand why when God says, or when, um, yeah, when uh, Paul wrote, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, the word wrath there is equal to tribulation um, in other places and in their theology. And so when, when it says God did not appoint us believers, right, I'm filling in the word there that's by context, God did not appoint us believers to wrath, what Paul is indicating is that since the wrath equals the entire seven, I'm sorry, since we're not appointed wrath, using building my syllogism here, a first premise, since God did not appoint us to wrath, uh, premise one, and since the wrath of God is the entire uh, seven year, since the wrath of God is tribulation, and it's entirely seven years long, second premise, then conclusion that follows from those two premises is that, in my syllogism, that we are not appointed to tribulation, thus we must be raptured prior to any tribulation, meaning prior to the seven year uh, start. That's kind of their theology there. Their syllogism is built that way. Uh, this article goes on to say, it seems inconsistent for God to promise believers that they will not suffer wrath. In other words, read, read here, tribulation. They will not suffer wrath and then leave them on the earth to suffer through the wrath of the tribulation. They go on to say, the fact that God, in other words, uh, in case you haven't guessed it here, I think Got Questions is a pre-trib outfit. Uh, they prominently speak of pre-trib very favorably, and I believe they are pre-trib in their theology. Um, they go on to say, the fact that God promises to deliver, to deliver Christians from wrath shortly after promising to remove his people from the earth seems to link those two events together. I do agree with the timing there of linking those two events together. What two events? The rescue of the righteous and the pouring out of God's wrath are linked. We'll deal with that in time, but for now, let's just keep reading. Um, there's uh, one more paragraph here and we're going to finish it tonight. They go on to say another crucial passage on the timing of the rapture is Revelation 3.10, in which Christ promises to deliver believers from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the earth. This could mean two things. Either Christ will protect the believers in the midst of the trials, right? We talked about the Goshen idea of God protecting Israel in the midst of the plagues that were being poured out on Egypt that day. He didn't rapture them out of the way before the plague started happening. He actually uh, entrenched them right in the middle of Egypt, but he protected them. He, he put a bubble around them so that cer certain of the plagues didn't affect them. 
but they only affected the Egyptians. That's the, what we call the Goshen principle that a lot of Messianic uh, uh, congregations are kind of banking on. So either Christ will protect believers in the midst of the trials, right? Revelation 3.10, um, or he will deliver, excuse me, deliver believers out of the trials. Both are valid meanings of the Greek word translated from when we talk about uh, protect you from the, the hour of trial. Um, Tereo ek, I believe, is the Greek. We'll look at that in time. However, it is important to recognize what believers are promised to be kept from. It's not just a trial, like it says in Revelation, but from the hour of trial. And so, if we take that to mean that the hour is the tribulation period or the wrath of God, then the, ta- the, the idea that they say Christ is promising to keep believers from the very time period that contains the trials, not just allowing us to go through them up to a point and then protect us later on, but rather they are, they, this article, like pre-tribbers, are banking on the idea that the tribulation is a definitive seven-year time period that would be marked out in humanity as having a beginning and an end. And therefore, because it has, it is a set time, it must be something that God is able to protect us from. Meaning, by contrast, Christians have been going through tribulation since Christ left planet Earth, right? For 2,000 years, Christians have been persecuted. We've been um, we've been going through any measure of any measurable amount of tribulation and persecution since Yeshua left us, since he left uh, Earth in the Book of Acts. So we don't need to suppose that the Book of Revelation, chapter three, verse ten, is saying that we're not going to go through any tribulation at all. No, on the contrary, we have promises that we will be persecuted and that we will go through tribulation. Indeed, if you don't go through tribulation for the sake of Messiah, you might want to check yourself to make sure you're even in Messiah, right? Because the spirit of Antichrist that hates Messiah is going to go after you. He's going to come after you. He's going to persecute you, and you're going to suffer um, a measured amount of persecution uh, through the um, spirit of the world that's all around us, the spirit of Antichrist that is also all around us presently. And, of course, we have an adversary, the devil, who's seeking to devour us like a roaring lion. So, yeah, we're, we're going to go through trials and tribulation. In fact, it's part and parcel of being a Christian. And it's happening now. We don't have to wait for a time period to agree that we're going through tribulation. But the point that Revelation 3.10 highlights is that there is an hour of trial, a specified time that's given this little code word hour. Is it 60 seconds? Unlikely. It's doubtful that that's what John meant when he said the hour. He's using kind of symbolic language, the specified time period. And so I agree with, got questions here, that it's some specified time that is designated by God as a time uh, marked off with boundaries of a beginning and an end. And so, if Christ is promising, picking up the reading, Christ is promising to keep believers from the very time period that contains the trials, namely the tribulation. Well, I disagree with their theology that we have to be kept from the entire time. I think we can go through the tribulation, but I subscribe to a view that we will be kept from the wrath, meaning a key component of the pre-trib versus pre-wrath is that pre-trib equates and conflates tribulation with wrath versus pre-wrath separates those two terms. We'll get to that in time. Don't worry if you if you're confused right now. The they go on to continue. They go on to say. 
and I'm closing with this. The purpose of the tribulation, the purpose of the rapture, the meaning of 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and the interpretation of Revelation 3, 10 all give clear support to the pre-tribulational rapture position, which again, this is interesting by um, comparison. If you just change that word tribulation to wrath there, then their theology is rock solid. Right? Let me read it again and just substitute wrath there. The purpose of the wrath, the purpose of the rapture, the meaning of 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and the interpretation of Revelation 3.10 all give clear support to the pre-wrath position. See? It's, it, it, it's really sometimes a bit of semantics. You know, what you call one thing, I'm going to call something else, right? So, they go on to say, if the Bible is interpreted literally and consistently, the pre-trib position is the most biblically-based interpretation. In case you couldn't guess which position they hold to, they just tip their cards. Right. They don't just tip their cards, they show them to you. Um, again, if we were to swap out that word pre-trib with pre-wrath, then I would be in, un, completely on board with what they just said. If the Bible is interpreted literally and consistently, the pre-wrath position is the most biblically-based interpretation. Right. So, that'll do it for eschatology a biblical study of end time events these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. 
This study is dedicated to an apologetics look at Trinitarian topics as they relate to primary verses that are located in both the Old and New Testaments. Namely, BiblicalUnitarian.com has a website dedicated to taking verses that are normally understood from a Trinitarian perspective and routing them and locating them in a Unitarian theology. Unitarianism believes that God is one God, but He's not divisible into persons. Therefore, God the Father is the Father of Jesus, the human being. There's only one God. His name is Yahweh, and He shares His identity with no other person. He's numerically one with Himself. Father and God are numerically identical names. Therefore, in this perspective, Jesus cannot be God. He can only be the Son of God. He's the human being that God brought into existence through the normal birth process that we all go through, and yet he was exalted by God to sit at the right hand of God, and therefore he is rightly given divine worship, but not as God, merely as uh, Messiah. I say merely because there's a downgrading there of their Christology from a high to a low in terms of how they define the nature of Jesus. He does not have God's nature in as much as he's not born divine or born with a divine nature. Rather, he is a unique human being. They give him that. I mean, you can't deny that. He's unique among all humans in that he sits at the right hand of God the Father and he enjoys worship from all human beings and rightfully so because of God's exaltation of him as the Son of God. And he is also sinless. They recognize that. He, he is without sin. He, is, um, he enjoys a, an, an anointing from the Holy Spirit that uh, none of us can quite parallel. And yet, in their perspective, he is human. He's fully human and only human. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is just another name for God the Father uh, because he is altogether thrice holy and altogether fully spirit. So that's their perspective. We Trinitarians are making a comparison and a contrast to that. And what we've been doing is borrowing certain verses from their website at biblicalunitarian.com, which is supplied in the link in the notes, I believe. However, we've just now finished going through Proverbs chapter uh, 8, verse 23, where we looked at, in fact, I'll just show it to you here. Proverbs 8, 23 was last week. We finished that. And now we're ready to turn to a new set of verses. Initially, I was just going to just take them one at a time, but these two verses are clumped together and um, in many, many apologetic works, and Biblical Unitarian has the first verse as just this very, very brief definition before they just jump right into the second one. So let's look at both of them uh, kind of um, together. But if we, in time, when we get to Isaiah, uh, when we get to Matthew, we'll circle, cycle, Matthew chapter 1, we'll cycle back around again and pick up the Isaiah passage. But according to biblicalunitarian.com, they've got a quote from Isaiah 7.14, which reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And so I jump over to their first resource and read the full verse. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. We're right here. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and, we'll, and we and will call him Emmanuel of the NIV. And their explanation is right here, 
Let's try that again. Some people believe that Jesus that because Jesus was to be called Emmanuel, God with us, he must be God incarnate. That is not the case. And for a full explanation of this, see the note on Matthew 1.23. And then that's it. That's all they have to say on that verse. So, like them, we'll skip that verse and, and uh, uh, pick it up when we get to Matthew 1.23. So instead, let's look at the second verse that they have on their list. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, dot, dot, dot. So let's turn to that one. And so we don't need that one open. Isaiah 9, 6. Now we'll begin to read down through their explanation, which has like kind of four parts to it. And we might only get through this part tonight, but we'll see. Okay. So the verse reads, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, um, we're going to read the verse in context, starting in verse 1, and, and stop at around verse 10 or something like that a little later on. But first, let's read Biblical Unitarians' uh, explanation of why they don't believe that this is a um, Trinitarian-leaning verse. Here's what they have to say. Tr- their, their explanation is short enough that I can probably hit the whole thing in 30 minutes they have allotted. Trinitarians should admit that this verse is translated improperly just from the fact that Jesus is never called the Everlasting Father anywhere else in Scripture. So they're going to start their um, rejection of Trinitarian theology by complaining about the wording, the verbiage, the nomenclature, which, again, I'm sorry from my uh, um, of history of uh, uh, an experience of reading through the Scripture, there are a number of places where the Bible gives us what we're going to call one-offs, where it mentions something once, or there's um, terminology that is uh, spoken of once, utilized once, or even just a few times. And when it comes to Jesus, it talks about a name or a title that we say, well, Jesus didn't actually make use of this title, so therefore we have to, we have to reject it and toss it out. I have two complaints with that theology. Number one, um, just because a title in its exact usage doesn't show up doesn't mean that it can't apply thematically or characteristically to the Messiah. It could be because names in the Bible aren't just labels, but at least in the Hebrew mindset, they are often a description or an indication of the character or nature or position or um, uh, reputation of a person. So they have the, they carry that aspect. So when we talk about the name, we don't have to say, well, Jesus didn't have the name Everlasting Father somewhere else in the Bible in order for us to apply it to Jesus in a thematic way or in a characteristic way. We can have that. And the second complaint I have with this type of theology that says, well, Jesus did never get wasn't ever given the name Everlasting Father. Well, not yet. Right? I mean, Jesus still has a lot that he's going to accomplish when he comes back. And who knows when he shows up, he might say, Hello, everybody. My name is, you're ready for it, wait for it, Everlasting Father. I mean, I'm being a little uh, silly there, but I mean, there are things about the Bible, about Jesus' second coming that haven't been revealed to us. And there are a lot of details that haven't been filled in. And so, yeah, uh, just because. It promises in the Bible that something's going to happen, and it hasn't happened yet, doesn't mean that it won't happen. And so that's the theology I'm building on, is that there are a number of Old Testament slash Tanakh prophecies that ancient Israel of old never saw come to pass, and therefore modern Israel today rejects them as applying to Jesus 
because they haven't happened yet. And yet we Christians realize that they haven't happened yet. Meaning, we believe the Bible is true and they will happen someday. So why not this one, right? Yeah, he's never called the Everlasting Father anywhere else in Scripture. Well, he hasn't been called that name yet, but who's to say that he won't be called that at some point in time down the road? Then we just didn't have a, another Bible verse that predicts that it would happen, or we don't have a fulfillment of it showing up somewhere in the New Testament. So, weak theology, either way you slice it. Let's keep reading what they have to say. Indeed, they go on to say, Trinitarians correctly deny that Jesus is the everlasting Father. And they say correctly deny, as if um, we're trying to agree as Trinitarians that Jesus is not the Father. Well, yes, He is not the Father. When we say He, we're talking about the Son. Jesus is the Son, therefore the Son is not the Father. We agree with that. But we as Trinitarians affirm that Yeshua is God. And we affirm that the Father is is God. So, building my little syllogism, if premise number one of two agrees that Jesus is uh, God, and premise number two agrees that the Father is God, and then the conclusion that follows is that Jesus um, um, agrees that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the the Son is, I'm, I think I'm destroying my syllogism, but I'm trying to describe uh, a truth that uh, the the Son is God, the Father is God, therefore, since Jesus is the Son, Jesus is God, or God is the Son, uh, the Father is the, uh, is the God, God is the Father, and therefore, both Father and Son wear the label God, therefore, uh, Jesus is God, even though Jesus is not the Father, so, that was the point where I was going with that before I kind of screwed it up there. Um, so, yeah, uh, Trinitarians do correctly deny that Jesus is the everlasting Father, but we're simply saying that it's the Son, Jesus, who's not the everlasting Father. But to the degree that in the Incarnation that Jesus enjoys full Godhead status, right, he's fully God, then the Son can be fully God, and since God is and since the Father is also fully God, then we can understand how that everlasting Father is um, a name that is referring to God, of which Jesus is. So, it's a basic tenet, they say, that Trinitarian doctrine, that Christians should neither confound the persons, nor divide the substance, right? The Athanasian Creed. It's interesting that they're kind of making appeal to us um, Trinitarians, as if, as if to say to us, look, you guys also don't believe this idea that Jesus is the everlasting Father, so why are you even saying that this passage is messianic and that it's referring to Jesus? You guys already agree with us, we biblical Unitarians, that Jesus, that the Son can't be the Father, right? Don't confuse the persons, don't confound the persons, and don't divide the substance, right? You've got it right there in your creed that Athanasius uh, outlined for you. They go on to say, thus, if this verse is translated properly, notice they're banking on this idea that the translation is, is improper, that it's incorrect. And... In time, we're going to show a bunch of different translations, and we'll see that there are some translations that go one direction and others that go a different direction. And typical biblical Unitarian, they're going to take the minority opinion, which in and of itself is not really um, a danger in your theology. It's okay to have a minority opinion. You don't have to agree with the majority. In fact, according to Yeshua's own words, it's the majority that often goes off in the wrong direction, right? 
It's, it's, it's the majority of the world who's going off in headlong into destruction. It's only the minority, the, the, the narrow is the way, uh, the, the minority which have discovered truth of who Jesus is and is actually traveling on the narrow road. So I don't have a problem with your theology following a, a minority versus a majority, but biblical Unitarian seems to highlight this all the time. They seem to try to go off into, well, we found one verse that says um, something different than whatever everybody else is teaching, and uh, we're just going to camp out on that verse because it's the one that it, that we agree with, that our theology agree with. So again, it just it smacks of cherry picking. If you understand the concept of cherry picking, where you, you've got hundreds of verses that teach something consistently over and over again, but then you find one verse that's kind of ambiguous or um, that has some, um, uh, um, some um, uh, ambiguity to it, um, right? It, it has uh, equivocation, and it's got just enough equivocation that you can say that it fits your theology, and so you run with that one. Well... A biblical Unitarian does it quite often. Jehovah's Witnesses do it quite often, so um, it's not really a good way to read your Bible. Thus, um, they say if this verse is translated properly, then the Trinitarian Christians have a real problem. So now they're going to launch into this idea of uh, what a proper translation of um, Everlasting Father should be. However, they say the phrase is mistranslated. I mean, they're very confident that it is mistranslated. They're not even giving the... As I say this interjectively, they're not even giving the um, the lexicons the benefit of the doubt that some words can be translated different ways. That there are nuance and range of words. Sometimes that there's a scope of of nuance built into many words, and that sometimes you have a word going one way and another word going another, and the same word going a slightly different way um, based on context. They're not even giving that. They're saying no, the phrase is mistranslated. I mean, even in the translations that I'm going to show you here in a moment that are different than the one we just saw, which is Everlasting Father, the Hebrew of the phrase can go one way or the other, but they are not contradictory. They're simply within the context, two different nuances of the same Hebrew word and the same Greek word as well. So I'm just amazed that they are so convinced that the phrase is mistranslated. Right, I mean, it's like they 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 put themselves in a place where they are they're unmovable, where they they don't consider the other options. So they go on to say the the word translated everlasting in 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 uh, everlasting father is actually the word age. That's their translation. That's their perspective. And um, to their credit, it's not the only translation. It's not the, they're not the only ones who are going to go with this. There are other Christian versions of the Bible that we're going to see, about a, a handful, that use age or something there. Ages, we'll see here in a moment. Um, so they say this correct translation is that Jesus will be called, quote, unquote, father of the age, and they insert the word coming there by context, um, meaning the age that Yeshua is going to usher in, where he talks about the Messianic age. Okay, let's keep reading their... Um, um, their explanation. Give me a moment. I'm going to highlight it like that. All right. So this is biblicunitarian.com speaking of Isaiah chapter nine verse six, where Yeshua or the Messiah or the um, coming Davidic King is given these um, four names or titles that were that we've read about. This is their answer. Um, in the culture of the Bible. Anyone who began anything or was very important to something was called its father. So, Jesus is supposedly called, according to their view, supposedly called the Everlasting Father. They have a problem with that. They have a problem with the word father. They don't have a problem with the Everlasting, but they have a problem with father 
I'm sorry, they have a problem with everlasting. They don't have a problem with father there in the context of um, what they're about to describe as someone being the um, architect of something. They're going to go on to describe people who are the father of certain ideas in the Bible or certain um, concepts that are mentioned in, a, in any particular passage. So we certainly, as uh, both Unitarians and Trinitarians, can't say that the Son is the Father. That is a confusion of the persons. And so I agree with that um, aspect. <clears throat> but to what degree is Jesus called the Everlasting Father? What is the meaning of this word everlasting? And what is the meaning of this word Father? We're gonna They're going to play with both of those words here in a moment. For example, dealing with this idea of Father, they say because Jabal was the first one to live in a tent and raise livestock the bible says that quote this is a past this is a quote from genesis 420 he jabal was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock right genesis 420 furthermore these are their examples because jubal was the first inventor of music musical instruments he is called the quote-unquote father of all who play the harp and the flute, Genesis 4.21. So they give me these examples of where um, someone is called the father of XYZ, and therefore the concept of, of them being labeled the father of something is not because they are, it, it's, it's their nature as fathers, rather it's that they're just being recognized as the first one who is uh, the person that started doing that thing first or something like that. Like Bill Gates is the father of Microsoft, right? He's the inventor of it. Um, he's the one who started the company and, and ran it for so long. Um, something like that uh, to the degree. You know, Steve Jobs is the father of Apple, even though he's not currently the, uh, uh, the, the CEO of Apple right now, but he's the, the one who began the company or helped to get it started along with other co-partners. All right, they go on to say, Scripture's not using father in the sense of literal father or ancestor in these verses because both these, men's, both these men were descendants of Cain and their descendants died in the flood. Uh, father, they say, was being used in the cultural understanding of either one who was the first to do something or someone who was... Give me a second, I want to stretch that out. Uh, some Because um, someone who was important in some way. So that's what they mean by father. Now, from there... They deduce that because the Messiah will be the one to establish the age to come, raise the dead into it, and rule over it, he is called, quote, the father of the coming age, end quote. So now you see why they're going to say that Jesus, in this verse where he's called everlasting father, he's not really everlasting father. The word everlasting can be translated age, and therefore he's not the father everlasting, meaning he's not someone who has um, everlasting identity or everlasting existence. Instead, they're going to strip that away from him and say the word everlasting means the word age. And therefore, <clears throat> Jesus is simply the father of an age. Which age? The coming messianic age. So, that's one aspect. Now they're going to pick on the phrase mighty God. Let's continue. The phrase mighty God can be better translated, can also be better translated. Um, notice they didn't say it's mistranslated, just say better translated. Although the word God in the Hebrew called just this, by the way, this part where they're talking, where they're going to pick on the word God using caps and lowercase is a prominent feature in their theological answers against Trinitarians, where they disagree with Jesus being called God in the capital G-O-D sense of the word. So I'm kind of spoiling it for you before I even read it, but I'm saying this in advance so you can follow along. Part of biblical Unitarians' primary theology 
banks on the idea that the word God in the Bible from context can mean capital G or lower G. And when we say lower G, it doesn't mean a divine figure like a demigod, like in the Jehovah's Witnesses, Arianism sense of the word. Rather, lower G simply means a mighty hero, a prominent person that features uh, heavily in the Bible, such as, as a Messiah figure, a king, a hero of renown, or an anointed person in God's perspective can be called an Elohim or a God in the lowercase g sense of the word. And so, Biblical Unitarian does this so that they can have their cake and eat it too because of the passages that give the title of God to Jesus or that um, the Old Testament prophecies that are speaking of God and yet are utilized uh, in uh, fulfillment of things that Jesus did or will do in the apostolic scriptures so the way we trinitarians say see here's an old testament passage that used the word god but jesus is the one that's doing whatever thing is being prophesied about or we have those verses in the new testament where jesus is actually called god right he's given that label um theos or something jesus is called theos in the greek well biblical unitarian says no we don't need for jesus to be god capital g but we can have him be lowercase g-o-d. We're okay with that. Kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses version of their New World Translation Bible of John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with capital G-O-D. And the Word was a lowercase g-o-d. That's what they do. All right. So they're about to go into that, go in that direction for a little bit. Again, they are not Arians. They Arians. They do not believe that Jesus is a lowercase g-o-d in the sense that he predates his birth in Bethlehem. No, they've got to make they biblical unitarian. They've got to make him into a man and only a man. Therefore, in the sense of the that he's a little g-o-d, he is simply a mighty hero. So let's go in that direction. So although the word God in the Hebrew culture had a much like kind of like Moses and they're going to they're going to highlight that Moses was a mighty hero he was an Elohim to Pharaoh he was a god to Pharaoh all right so um god in the hebrew they're going to school us here for a moment okay uh, God in the Hebrew culture had a much wider range of application than it does in ours, and the average reader does not know or understand that right there's their schooling readers familiar with the Semitic languages know that a man who's acting with God's authority can be called God. So notice how they move from capital G-O-T to lowercase G-O-D. Oh, and, and by the way, I'm not completely disagreeing with the semantic range of Elohim. I do agree with that. Context demands the meaning of any word and the nuances in, in, in view. But what they, what they seem to not catch is the idea that God doesn't simply rely on nuance to convey to us the idea that his son is full deity he doesn't simply rely on words god doesn't play word games is the point i'm trying to make in the way that biblical unitarian seems to be playing word games at times god doesn't resort to that god instead gives us numerous other examples and indicators to help us build a massive case which we're going to do in our defense a massive case for understanding that Jesus is fully divine and yet fully human at the same time. So I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's the way we have to treat these objections to Trinity is we have to look at the Bible in its totality, something that Biblical Unitarian plays short shrift to. They they pay lip service to the New Testament. I'm sorry, but that that's basically the way, what they do. They take the truths of the New Testament, 
and strip them of their full authority and only pay lip service and neuter a lot of the concepts and, and truths of the New Testament in favor of an Old Testament-centric theology where the Jewish people of old certainly didn't believe it, so we're not going to believe it either. So they, they back down to a monotheistic theology that is in line with um, Old Testament mysteries. Um, I say mysteries because from a New Testament perspective, the Incarnation was hidden from the Old Testament prophet's perspective in an, in an, um, in an unambiguous way. Rather, um, there are hints given in the Old Testament of Incarnation, but the full revelation isn't given until Yeshua walked among us and then the Holy Spirit filled in all the details for us, and then they wrote it down, and now we've got the Apostolic Scriptures known as the New Testament, and now we've got the Incarnation right in our face. But Biblical Unitarian rejects that that um, revelation. And so shame on them for rejecting what God gave to us is the answer to a mu- to many of the mysterious um, figures in the Old Testament, like the angel of the Lord, which you are going to include in our answer here to their rejection of Jesus as being fully divine. So let's keep reading their answer here. Um, they talk about how that ca- uh, capital G-O-D, his authority makes a distinction between capital G-O-D and lowercase G-O-D. Right? Again, this is based on some truth. It's not kind of like pseudo-truth. It's half-truth in the nuanced sense of the word. Yeah, if you want to take Elohim and start looking at um, some of the minor contexts. Right? Hello, major and minor again. Um so we've got G-O-D in the lowercase G-O-D in the Hebrew language, which is only capital letters. I'm sorry, the Hebrew language has only capital letters, so it can't display. You can't know for sure from the original Hebrew whether it's capital G-O-D or lowercase G-O-D. You can only know from context. So they go. Uh, they say a better translation for the English reader would be mighty hero or divine hero, right? Mighty hero or divine hero instead of um, mighty God or or something like that. And then they remind us that both Martin Luther and James Moffat translate the phrases as divine hero in their Bibles, right? Martin Luther had a um, Latin ver- uh, um, a, uh, a was it a, a Latin version of his Bible, and then Mo- Moffat's version of the Bible also. They have it as divine hero or something like that. Uh, and then they go on to remind us that more flexible use of God. See their notes on Hebrews one eight. All right, let's look at number three of four. Uh, Biblical Unitarian's answer, we're um, at about eight minutes left in the study, and so I think we'll have just enough time to read through Biblical Unitarian's answer on this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and then we're probably, um, if we have a little bit of time, we'll read the passage, and then we will, um, I'll show you where we're going to go with our explanations. A clear example, they go on to say that the word translated God in Isaiah 9, 6 can be used of powerful earthly rulers, right? Again, they're saying it doesn't have to be God, can also be humans, which, <laughs> conveniently for us, we Trinitarians don't disagree that Jesus is a mighty hero. He is a human being, right? Hello? He, he's a powerful earthly ruler, <laughs> but he's also very God. So, um, it's, it kind of humors me. I'm laughing. You can hear me to my voice. I'm kind of laughing because sometimes Biblical Unitarian tries to school me on the idea that Jesus is a human, as if I don't believe that he is, or something like that. There is a, a heretical branch of Christianity that does not believe that Jesus is human. They rather believe that he's fully divine, and that the human that part that we saw was just an apparition. It was kind of like an avatar. It was a uh, projection. It was um, a phantom. 
Um, it wasn't truly flesh and blood. I can't remember the name of that heresy, but uh, I reject that. Okay, so um, a clear example of the word translated to God in Isaiah 9, 6 can be used of powerful earthly rulers. We've got Ezekiel 31, 11 referring to the Babylonian king. They continue, the Trinitarian bias of most translators can be clearly seen by comparing Isaiah 9, 6, which is L, God, with Ezekiel 31.11, L equals ruler. So we have, in context, in Isaiah, L equals God, according to Trinitarians. And yet, in our own Trinitarian Bibles, Ezekiel 31.11 has L meaning ruler. So they're going to they're gonna try to call us out on the um, inconsistency of our translation. But that's not what we're doing. We're simply, as Trinitarians, recognizing, you ready for it? The capital C word, which is king, context. Okay. They go on to say, if calling the Messiah El made him God, then the Babylonian king would also would be God also. Um, Isaiah is speaking of God's Messiah and calling him a mighty ruler, which of course he will be. Okay. Uh, they go on to say, the phrase translated mighty God in Isaiah 9.6 is the NIV in the Hebrew El Gibor. And we'll see this translation in time, maybe even tonight if we have time. That very phrase in the plural form, El Gibor, is used uh, in Ezekiel 32.21, where dead he rose, right, plural of uh, Giborim or something that Giborot, I'd have to look up uh, to see which of, if it's masculine or feminine in the Hebrew, um, where this word, I believe it's masculine, so Giborim or something like that, where dead heroes and mighty men are said by the figure of speech personification to speak to others. The phrase in Ezekiel is translated mighty leaders in the NIV, and the strong among the mighty in the KJV and the NASB. The Hebrew phrase, when used in the singular, can refer to one mighty leader, just as when used in the plural, it can refer to many mighty leaders. All right, and then their last uh, paragraph uh, in their argument, number four, the context illuminates great truth about the verse and also shows that there's no justification for believing that it refers to the Trinity, but rather to God's appointed ruler. And again, I'm going to partially agree with what they're saying only because they use the word Trinity here instead of the word deity of Messiah. You have to be very careful when you're reading through uh, counter-missionary and anti-missionary or anti-Trinitarian um, uh, arguments against trinity oftentimes they will try to um do a little bit of switching around between terms without you being aware of it sometimes they'll say jesus is not god and we reject that and then elsewhere in their argument they'll say we we um, reject trinity and so in our defense for jesus being fully divine we'll say things like yes we we believe jesus is divine and then Sometimes we'll say, yes, we believe in Trinity. So it's it's two arguments that work together, but they have separate details in and of themselves where the word um, divine is one argument and the, the, the term Trinity is a separate argument, but they work both work together to bring about the Trinitarian understanding. Well, here, Biblical Unitarian says there's no justification for believing that it refers to the Trinity. And what I'm trying to say is that when we look at the verse that we're going to be reading about in Isaiah, I have to agree. It isn't referring to Trinity, but it is referring to Yeshua's divinity. So, in other words, the Holy Spirit is not in view. There are quite a number of passages in the, Apostol in the Old Testament and even in the Apostolic Scriptures where it's not Trinity that's in view, but Yeshua's divinity is 
in view. And we have verses that are not triune in their nature. They're not triadic. They don't mention Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They simply mention the two, Father and Son, which are the two more visible members of the Trinity, the, 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 the two persons that are mostly um, described and dealt with in the Bible as a whole. Holy Spirit um, often plays a back seat, and he is often playing an invisible role that is not even even given credit, except by context we can tell that there must be spirit activity going on. But up front, we don't have anything in the verse that indicates, hey, there's spirit activity happening or something to that effect. So the labels that the child is given in Isaiah don't seem to correspond to any of the labels that we would associate with the Holy Spirit, right? Um, everlasting, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Um, none of those titles seem to be connected to Holy to the Holy Spirit himself either. So when they say Trinity, I'm simply saying, um, yeah, that's true, but why, why would you have to say Trinity here at this point in time? And they say, rather, to God's appointed ruler, which, yes, many of the prophecies, and I'm kind of tipping my hand a bit before, the, without actually getting into it, many of the Old Testament prophecies is that borrow the theme of the Davidic king, the Messianic king who is to come, are rooted in this, this understanding from Israel's perspective that there is a king that they're going to be expected to sit on the throne in the natural sense, God's appointed ruler. Yes, we're going to look for him. We're going to be able to see him. We can go visit him. We can bring our gifts and pay homage to him. We can have a, a, an audience with him if he will accept us, right? We can talk to him. We can see him. He's a human being. So we don't have a problem with that. He's God's anointed, right? And that word anointed in the English is rooted in the Hebrew word Mashiach, from where we get the word, the English word Messiah. So yeah, I don't have a problem with that, that many massive amounts of, of scriptures in the Old Testament are pointing to the appointed ruler of which david was one of the chief ones one of the primary ones that filled in that that um what we call that type when we talk i'm sorry filled in that shadow when we talk about type and shadow david is the shadow but as we're going to find out in the greater context without cherry picking in the greater context of the idea in the old testament of the messianic ruler who would fulfill certain prerogatives and act on god's behalf uh throughout the history of israel and most importantly as be established in a king in a throne and position that will not have an end i.e everlasting it is only one figure who can fulfill that role and that is king jesus himself so we're going to get to that in time but let's keep reading biblical unitarians um weak answer the opening verse of the chapter foretells a time when there will be no more gloom for those in distress all right so they're trying to pick up the context which is admirable all war and death will cease and every warrior's boot will be uh, destined for burning verse 5 yes i commend them for going back to context because we're going to do the exact same thing how will this come to pass biblical unitarian says the chapter goes on for to us a child is born and to us a son is given verse 6 right the famous verse that we read during christmas time in christian circles there's no hint that this child will be god and reputable trinitarian scholars will assert that the jews of the old testament knew nothing of an incarnation um yes it's true they didn't know anything about an incarnation as far as we can tell but for good reason because it was a mystery hello um for them the messiah was going to be a man anointed by god he would start as a child which of course yahweh their eternal god could never be 
Um, again, yeah, I agree with the blindness, the description of the blindness on ancient Israel's part, at least for the most part, um, not counting the ancient prophets who were given insight into the incarnation to the degree that, um, like Moses of old, they wrote about this interaction of God with the Israelites, sometimes in the form of the angel of the Lord, sometimes in the form of the captain of the Lord's hosts, and then other times, um, this, um, a messianic king who was going to come on Israel's horizon that was hinting at um, being very God among us. So things like that. They go on to say, and we'll, again, we're drawing our study to a close since I'm running out of time for this 30-minute segment. And what a great ruler this man would grow to be. The government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Hero, Father of the Coming Age, Prince of Peace. So, notice the titles that we as Trinitarians associate with Jesus being not just human, but divine as well, right? Um, Mighty God, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We don't just associate these titles with Yeshua's humanity, but we associate them with his divinity. Furthermore, um, he will reign on David's throne in verse 7, which could never be said of God. Um, yeah, we'll have to play with that for a little, uh, play with that, um, we'll have to massage that, uh, those statements in time. Uh, God could never sit on David's throne. Um, but God's Messiah, the son of David could, right? Matthew 9, 27 et al. Uh, they go on to conclude also the very next verse, Isaiah 9, 7 ends with the zeal of Yahweh of armies will do this. In other words, by context, what they remind us is that Yahweh will bring this child about. The child is not Yahweh himself. They go on to remind us that there are two different characters in the immediate context, Yahweh and his Messiah, not one, which I agree with part of that with that uh, line of reasoning as well. Oftentimes, when we're reading through the Bible, there are clearly two figures in view, or two beings, if you want to um, use Trinitarian theology. Um, there are two beings in view. Two, I'm sorry, not two beings, two persons in view. Um, you know, father and son. And so again, this shows that biblical Unitarian says that there's one God and one person. Remember, primary to their theology of God being one, as in Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one, is that they fill in the context with Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one person. They believe that God is one person, not more than one person. They reject three persons of God, but God is one. He's one being, and the being is equated numerically with the person, and therefore Father and God are numerically one, and they are one being and one person. So whenever they read about passages like this where there is clearly another person in view, from their perspective, this must and only refer to the must and can only mean that it is the person of Jesus, the human being. And there's some amount of truth to that because Jesus is fully human. And in closing, they say, thus, a study of the verse in its context reveals that it does not refer to the Trinity at all. Again, why they're talking about Trinity. Um, why don't they just say it does not refer to the divinity of Jesus? Because that's more close to the context without kind of introducing what I'm referring to as kind of a bit of a straw man uh, tactic, where you introduce a term that the your opponent wasn't quite using, or you introduce a, a weak use of the term that your opponent was using, in other words, a context of term not used in the context of the immediate argument, and you kind of highlight that to show how illogical it is for um, anyone to believe that perspective. So they're trying to say, hey, 
the verse doesn't talk about Trinity. Well, yeah, I agree. It isn't talking about Trinity, but uh, they say, but it refers to the Messiah, the son of David. So you're supposed to um, go, yeah, you're right. It doesn't talk about Trinity. So therefore, it must mean that biblical Unitarian is correct. No, I agree as a Trinitarian that the verse isn't a Trinitarian passage, but it absolutely is a passage that is affirming the um, deity of Messiah. So I don't have to use the word Trinity there to hold to my position as a Trinitarian. So they say, nope, it's not about Trinity. It's all about Messiah, meaning about the human. And it's about the son of David and, and the son of God, meaning the human Jesus. And that's going to do it for their... Um, their answer. So what I'm going to do just real quick is I'm going to flash through some of the tabs that I have connected to this particular study, and then I'm going to draw it to a close. In time, what we're going to do is we're going to read Isaiah chapter 9, the first probably 10 verses, I think, so we can gain the context. And we will focus on the verse 9 and look at some of the Hebrew. We'll even look at some of the Greek. Speaking of the Hebrew, we will look at that specifically next week, where we'll just examine the um, uh, the the words so we can make sure that we're understanding some of the um, nuances and the translations and then speaking of translations we will also i didn't have the tab open but we'll eventually next week also look at a variety of english translations and christian versions to include some of those ones that don't use mighty god but instead say mighty hero or something like that Along the way, along our journey, we will definitely look at Judaism's translations as well. Right now in front of you, you've got the revised Jewish Publication Society 2023 version of this verse, which in Jewish rendering, Jewish numbering is a verse earlier. It's not verse, verse 6, it's verse 5. And so you can see on your screen, they, they do say mighty God. But they've got this strange, kind of odd, um, uh, what's the word, paraphrase? They don't. They turn the names into a, a, a little, a mini, a mini sentence. We'll look at that in time. We'll also look at their earlier JPS version, along with some other Hebrew translations. We wouldn't do justice without looking at the Greek version of this passage using Greek doc, uh, dot GitHub dot com, a website of John Barrich, whom I've also been in um, uh, email contact with to be able to use his resources quite extensively. Um, he's got a translation from the Hebrew on top, as well as translations of both version, prominent versions of the um, Greek, the Alexandrinus on the left and the Vaticanus on the right, which is much longer. We'll look at both of those, as well as the English um, versions that uh, John Barrich himself is doing. And then from there, we'll begin to look at some defense of the Trinitarian perspective. Remember, this is... A Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. And we're going to begin to defend the Trinitarian idea that these verses are in fact affirming the divinity of Messiah who must have a kingdom that rules forever and therefore he must be divine. And um, not just based on that alone, but based on other clues in the passage and based on the wider context of Isaiah uh, as it is um, cast against the other um, Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah and his kingdom. So one of the ways that we're going to begin to defend this is the idea that the Bible's already built when we get to Isaiah, we already have we already have this idea, this figure known as the angel of the Lord, and this will help us um, track with the uh, Septuagint rendering in the Greek, which has a, kind of almost a very significant um, alteration of from the Hebrew. 
um, of the identity of the figure in Isaiah. Who is this person? It's actually, um, you're going to find kind of surprisingly, it's a bit rooted in something that goes all the way back to the angel Lord in the in older parts of our Bible. So we'll begin to look at that through the website resource of answeringislam.org first. Uh, Sam Shamoon's um, answer there. From there, we'll move to looking at uh, the most well-known and probably well-respected um, Messianic apolo- Messianic Jewish apologet- apologist on Earth on planet Earth today. <coughs> certainly one of the most famous. I mean, he doesn't have to be the best, but he certainly is one of the more well-known and more respected. And that's Dr. Michael Brown himself, whom I've had the pleasure of having dinner with. Um, when he came to visit our congregation some time ago, and uh, he took the leaders out to do well, we all met at, at uh, Pastor Mark's uh, house, ate dinner, fellowshiped, prayed together, um, uh, worshiped together. It was just great. He first taught at our congregation that Shabbat, and then he uh, went to Pastor Mark's house, and all the leaders were invited. So it's kind of a, it felt kind of like the Last Supper. Where we had the, a private dinner with the, the prominent leader and got to pick his brain on everything. So he's just a great guy, a real, a real. A real mensch, uh, which is Yiddish for kind of a just an all-around good, good fellow, good, good, good guy, um, a reasonable person. Um, Dr. Michael Brown has a, a complete um, vo- five-volume set on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. We're going to utilize some of those materials as they show up in a different website here. Uh, you can buy them, by the way, from his own resources, uh, thelineoffire.org, from the store there. But um, he has allowed them to be reproduced on various sites, and here's one that I'm going to utilize, where does Isaiah speak of the uh, divine king or Messiah? Um, the objection is that it does not, right? Isaiah does not speak of, and so he's going to answer that objection. And then we'll continue with objections by looking at another blog put together by Messianic um, Resource Truth.net.org, objections to Isaiah 714 and Isaiah 9, so we can build a context from both of those passages that were mentioned by, um, that are covered by uh, Biblical Unitarian, but we're not doing both of them tonight. And then lastly, uh, I don't want to drag this too long, but uh, does Isaiah 96 affirm the deity of Israel's Messiah? As looked at uh, through the uh, lens of the website by, um, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Dr. Frank Turek, who is another preeminent apologist in the uh, in the world today, um, travels to uh, school campuses where he debates people, usually students, younger people who uh, don't even believe in God. But he's he wrote a book uh, that's very well known. I don't have enough. He's fond of saying, I don't know if it's a book. I I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, right? Um, uh, highlighting the idea that atheism itself is a religion and that he himself doesn't have enough faith to follow that religion but he is a trinitarian believer and he has a post here on his website crossexamine.org and he has a post on does isaiah 9 6 affirm the deity of israel's messiah we'll get to that in time but um in closing we'll just um stop right there we're going to be looking at Isaiah 9-6 and start our journey out i don't know how long this one's going to go the last proverbs one took 26 pieces uh, uh which um 26 parts which was at least a week for uh maybe t- a week for two parts so at least 13 weeks um something like that um 
I don't mean to make these drag out so long. I don't want this one to go out very long either. I initially didn't intend for them to be so long. They were intended to be kind of short answers to Trinitarian objections, uh, uh, biblical, uh, uh, non-Trinitarian objections answered very quickly, but it just turned out to be a longer type of series. So we'll see how far this one goes, but that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Father, I'm thankful that you are Lord and that you are God and that you have revealed yourself to us in the person of your Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is also a person himself. Thank you for bringing us to the realization of these truths, not in and of ourselves, but because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to us. He has taken the very words that you gave and unlocked them in our mind. He has um, made them a reality to us. He has affirmed them in our hearts and confirmed them to our very spirits so that we can um, acknowledge and affirm and and believe that um, there's one God, yet three persons, even though we can't fully grasp this idea of incarnation. We can't fully understand how Yeshua is truly and fully God, and yet truly and fully human at the same time. But we thank you nonetheless that um, you are wiser than us and that you have preserved your words uh, so that even though the critics may come and go, your word has withstood the test of time, and we will turn to that source over and over, and we will root our theology in not what men say, but what you have said. Your words of truth, they are life, they are where we're going to find our salvation. Thank you for this resource. Thank you for the earlier study on eschatology and for preparing us for the end times and uh, continuing to protect us even in the midst of the persecution that is happening right now even though we know that it's going to just ramp up and get worse and worse as time moves forward bless you father for your promises which are true and that you promise that you will send your son one day to rescue us to preserve us to protect us and to bring us into the kingdom no matter when that happens no matter our disagreements on the timing we can be assured that it will happen because you have said that it's going to happen and we trust you we know that your words will come to pass absolutely positively there's no question that what you say happens will happen because you are god and there's none like you and we'll continue to trust in your name and in your promises and we'll give you the praise and the glory Bashim yeshua omen 